Thank you, Larry. Good to be back with you all. Carl, great to see you. Advent. How many people here grew up in a traditional kind of church where you celebrated Advent? Just a handful. Yeah, okay. Well, today is the beginning of Advent, the fourth Sunday before Christmas. You know, the season of Advent uh, anticipates the coming of Christ from two perspectives. The first coming of the Messiah, which is why we have hope, which is the theme of the first Sunday, and also to be alert to his second coming. You know, the traditions include the keeping of an Advent calendar, lighting of an Advent wreath, uh, an Advent daily devotional, setting up Christmas decorations, including the greening of, you know, the hanging of greens. Traditional colors are purple or blue. Uh, one of the favorite Advent hymns is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I think Go Tell It on a Mountain is also very appropriate and good. That was great. Um, there are four Advent candles represented over here. The first Sunday is uh, hope, the candle of hope, anticipation of the Messiah. Next week, you'll have the Bethlehem candle or the way or the prophet's candle, signifying his birth in a manger. The third week is joy, the shepherd's candle. And the fourth candle is the angel's candle, the Annunciation of Christ's birth. In some traditions, there's a fifth candle that's lit on Christmas Eve. Advent, it's really all about Jesus, isn't it? Uh, we're going to have, a, I hope, a unique look at Jesus today. I have a question for you. Who are the five most important people in the Old Testament? Just think about it. Who would you say, if you had a list, five of the most important people in the New Testament, who would you say? Abraham. Abraham. Elijah. Larry said Nahum, because that's who I preached on last uh, <laughs> summer. Yeah. Also somebody who gets ignored a lot. But uh, yeah, David. I mean, there are lots of choices. Uh, but I think there's one f important figure who's not on your list, and we're going to talk about him today. Second question I have for you has to do with current events. Would you agree that we seem to be living in a time of anxiety? Maybe less so now that the election's over, but, uh, you know, it was a crazy time. What are people worried about today? Worried about the future of our country? I know I have been. Uh, ISIS, you know, terror plots going on. We came through Thanksgiving with no big strikes anywhere. Uh, the economy, health care, your own health. Care, are, are you worried a little bit about your children, your grandchildren? You know, here are some good quotes on fear that I, uh, I, I've got for you. Bertrand Russell, who is a famous atheist of the 20th century, said, all religion is born out of fear. Well, he knows better now, and he has something to fear. <laughs> a man who is afraid to fight used to be called a coward. 
Today they call him a bachelor. That's a pretty good one. Uh, as Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And don't fear tomorrow because God is already there. Don't be afraid to go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. That's a good one. Do you know there are 365 fear knots in the Bible? One for every day. Uh, faith is like a muscle and prayer is the exercise that helps it grow. You know, our country was founded on biblical principles and then we became more religious than biblical. And today we've taken God out of our schools, out of our courts, out of most people's lives. But as Christians, we know we need to look at the Bible for answers to our fears. We're going to look at some uh, interesting and interrelated passages of Scripture today. And I want to start in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It's like eavesdropping on the Godhead. And Psalm 110 is like an acorn for the whole New Testament. The whole story is there in a little microcosm. The beginning. Do you know that uh, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Which would mean to me that it's pretty important. Uh, Psalm 110, I'm going to go ahead and read it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, keeping up, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. He will be victorious. Let's look at that a little bit. The Lord says to my Lord, David wrote this psalm. Who's he talking about here? Well, in the Hebrew, the Lord says to my Lord are two different words. The Lord, the first one is Yahweh, God Almighty, says to my Lord, Adonai. It's a different word, but it's a name given for the Messiah the Christ, to come. So the Lord, God the Father is talking to God the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make enemies, your enemies a footstool for your feet. When will that take place? It already did at the ascension. He's seated at, seated at the right hand of God the Father. As you go down, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who is he talking about? Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And then the, it, it shifts to the, the last three verses. 
He's talking to us, believers. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his... He's talking to, to Jesus still. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. He's talking about Jesus. But when? The second coming. So we're an advent. We're looking back and we're looking ahead. But we don't have to fear, do we? Because God wins. Jesus wins. We need to remember that, especially in scary times. Now, who is this guy, Melchizedek? Who's ever done a Bible study on Melchizedek? Or I like to say, who the heck is Melchizedek? Uh -huh. I bet he wasn't on your short list of people in the Old Testament who were key or important. To find his story, we had to go back in time, way back. Psalm 10 was written about 3,000 years ago by King David. But for more information on Melchizedek, we have to go back another 1,000 years. We've got to go back 4,000 years. The story is in Genesis chapter 14. Let me set the scene for you in chapter 13 and a little bit of 14. Abram and Lot and their families had moved from where? southern Mesopotamia to the promised land but then there was a famine and they left and they went to Egypt remember the story where Abram said this is my sister and Pharaoh got a lot pretty mad at him and threw him out of Egypt well they've settled now in back in the promised land uh, Abram is settled in one part but Lot decided, his nephew Lot decided to settle near Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, there's a war in the Middle East, how unusual, but uh, the war goes on and Lot and his family and people from the town of Sodom are captured and hauled away by these other kings from the north. I'm going to Genesis 14 starting in verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative, Lot, had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobath, north of Damascus, north of Syria. These are places we know about today. We in the news. But he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned uh, from defeating the other kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him because Lot had, was living in Sodom. But also, in verse 18, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Kind of interesting. Sodom, the first 
the king of, of Sodom. Sodom means burning. It's a wicked place. We know that shortly after this, God destroyed Sodom. Uh, the king of Sodom was there. But Salem means something different. Salem means shalom, peace. There are some implications of Abram's choice between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, who was Melchizedek. Choice between wickedness and righteousness. And he chose righteousness. You know, the place called Salem later became better known as Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was the king and high priest of what would become Jerusalem. It's the first time Jerusalem or Salem is ever mentioned in the Bible. Do you realize God had a high priest in Jerusalem before there was a Jewish person alive? Because he was still Abram then. He hadn't been, his name hadn't been changed to Abraham and become the first Jewish person. Interesting. The next time we hear about Melchizedek is in Psalm 110, which we just read. And then we hear about him again in the Gospels from Jesus himself, quotes things about Melchizedek. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, are a commentary on Psalm 110. They explain the Old and the New Covenant. But let me look at the Gospels with you. Matthew 22:41 through 46 While the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them What do you think about the Messiah whose son is he The son of David they replied messianic prophecy And he said to them How is it then that David speaking by the spirit calls him Lord for he says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Quoting from Psalm 110. If David calls him Lord, how can, be, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I like you know, the Pharisees said, oh, shut my mouth. I can't say. I, they don't know how to answer him. He's making claims. He's, he's, he's making, he's saying, it's me. We know that on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, we know that Jesus was really talking about himself. In Mark 12, to a large crowd this time, not just the Pharisees, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do you, the teachers of the law, say that the why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Spirit, declared, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your under your feet." David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. The story is repeated again in Luke 20. Interesting stuff. Melchizedek. He's, Jesus quoted Melchizedek. We jump ahead in the Bible to the, to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5 is talking about, again, contrasting the Old Covenant, the Levitical system, 
with the priesthood of Melchizedek. Interesting. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. He has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. Levitical priests were not perfect. It goes on, Hebrews here in chapter 5, goes on to quote Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, talking to his son, God talking to his son. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. He became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeyed him, who trusted him. Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews goes on, the certainty of God's promise. When God made his promise to Abraham that he would be the first of millions of people, many people, descendants, he said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. That was an addition to the promise. He took it, well, I will surely bless you God made an oath. So people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to any arguments. God wanted to make, and again I'm reading from verse 17 in Hebrews, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us and be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm, secure. Our hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 goes on talking about these things. Verse 7 of Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. All the spoils from the conquest Abraham gave to tenth of to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also the king of Salem means the king of peace. There's nothing in the Bible about Melchizedek's father or mother. He doesn't have a genealogy. Beginning of days or end of life. He kind of resembles the son of God. He, remember, he remains a priest forever. How great was Melchizedek? <clears throat> Abram gave him a tithe, a tenth of everything that he had captured. One might say that Levi... And this is, I'm quoting now from verse 9. That Levi, who collects the tenth as a part of the Levitical priesthood, they paid, he paid a tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek made Abraham 
Levi was still in Abram's body, you know, as a descendant. So if per perfection could be obtained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people that established the priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law also must be changed. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. And no tribe had ever served, that no one in that tribe had ever served at the altar. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. All the priests had to come from the Levites. It's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Again, in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 17, the author of Hebrews says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation, the old covenant, the law, is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is, in is introduced by which we draw near to God. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, the new covenant of grace, the one we enjoy, right? Now, there have been many priests, but death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, right? Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted about the heavens. He, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Let me review that because that's a lot of stuff to think about. And he... Hebrews 5 through 7. In Hebrews 5, he talked about what kind of priest Jesus is, the Messiah. He's eternal. He's a perfect priest. What is Jesus the source of? What does he give you? Eternal life. Salvation. And whose line is he in? Melchizedek. In chapter 6, God has given us both his promise and his oath in verse 17. In 19, this confidence is like a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Well, where does it, that confidence take us? It takes us behind the curtain, directly to God. Jewish people could never go to God directly. He was in the Holy of Holies. The priest had to make an offering so that they could appease God and and save them, not save them forever, but to cover the sins of the people. But how long will Jesus be our high priest, according to chapter 6? Forever, eternally. Now let's compare, in chapter 7, we compare the two priesthoods some more. You've got the Levitical priesthood of Aaron, and you've got the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus. Which one is greater? Melchizedek. Why, how do we know that it's greater? Well, because 
Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. The lesser always tithes to the greater, right? That's why we give to God. The duration, priests lived through their lifetime and then they were no longer priests in the Levitical system. But in Melchizedek's case, in Jesus' case, it's forever. There's a sense of purity. Priests offered for the sins of the people and themselves. Jesus was perfect and sinless. Under the law, the law is not perfect. Grace is better. We have a better hope. The old covenant is conditional. The new covenant is unconditional. You know, I grew up in a church with priests, confession. The priest had the keys to heaven or so we were taught. Uh, it ended up, for me anyway, being very unsatisfactory. Uh, you couldn't be sure. It's almost an extension of the Levitical priesthood when you think about it. You know, it, it didn't finish it. It wasn't done. You had to keep doing it. You had to keep working at it. But Jesus remains a priest forever. His priesthood will never end. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save everyone who comes to God through him. He lives forever to plead with God on their behalf. Hebrews 7, 24, 25. If life is a trial, are you still talking with your defense attorney? He, Jesus, he keeps rebutting Satan's charges and reminding God, the Father, and he reminds Satan and us that we've been declared, what? Not guilty. We have nothing to fear. You know, it's like God drew a line in history, a timeline running right through history at the cross. On one side of the cross, you've got the law, the old covenant. And on this side, you've got grace, the new covenant. Whole different thing. Under law, you've got works, things you have to do. It's all about you doing these things. In the new covenant, it's all about faith. It's about Jesus. It's other people-centered. Under the law, it says, do this and live. It's works of the flesh. Under grace, believe and live. Whole different problem, whole different solution. You have the works of the flesh under the law, under the fruit of the Spirit. You've got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law condemns, kills. The new covenant saves, makes alive. The law cursed people if they broke it, and everyone did. The new covenant makes people alive when we believe. The law exposes the distance between God and people. Grace reconciles people to God. The law condemns the very best person. 
Grace freely justifies the worst. Under the law, the sheep died for the shepherd, right? Under grace, the good shepherd died for the sheep. What a difference. You know, under the law, people were motivated by wanting to receive external reward or to avoid punishment. Under grace, our motivation is an internal desire to please God. We want to do that because he's already done everything for us. Jesus wins. We win. We are safe forever. You know, we can have peace. So when life gets hard or worrisome or you're fearful, don't forget to remember (laughs) who your high priest is, who your king is. The better eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ means we can have total confidence, total trust, and the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, forever. You're worried about things? Philippians 4 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And thank him for all he has done. If you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Let me close in prayer, okay? Father, We thank you so much for the eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we can total confidence, total trust, because we know that he is totally sufficient to meet all of our needs today, tomorrow, forever. We can have peace through Jesus Christ and the new covenant, which we'll celebrate this morning in communion. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings, for your unconditional love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.